This is Connected to Chicago, a look at the top stories of the week with the people making, covering, and talking about the news of the day. Now, Connected to Chicago. And welcome to Connected to Chicago. A little different this week as we recap some of the week's stories. And we start with strong storms that hit Illinois last week, leaving six people dead at an Amazon facility in downstate Edwardsville. Governor Pritzker toured the damage, and now there's an OSHA investigation into the facility there, which was built in 2016. This is a tragedy of enormous proportion. Uh, we have uh, not seen something like this for quite a while in the state of Illinois, and unfortunately these kinds of storms are happening more and more often. Uh, and it, it doesn't help to know that. It just uh, is a fact. And just the, the families, I, I think what, what really... Uh, uh, gives me hope is the the entire community, not just Edwardsville, but all the surrounding communities. And you see all these first responders behind me. They all came together to help. Uh, on you know at 8:30 when this thing hit, roughly speaking, uh, on Friday night, all night there was another storm that hit shortly after the first one. So they were being uh, pelted with wind and rain as they were all in the facility trying to rescue people. Um, there were, you know, uh, uh, water mains that had been broken off, so there was water flowing uh, in the building, again, while they were trying to rescue people. And there were uh, ledges of uh, concrete that were hanging and, and potentially endangering people that these folks walked through to find uh, and rescue people. So. Um, I, and and to you know to do their best to, to make sure that the site was safe, uh, and so I, I just I, I'm grateful for that. I'm also um, genuinely uh, concerned for the families here that just in an instant uh, lost um, six um, of our community members here, and uh, and there's nothing that can bring them back. But the community is coming together around them, and I'm very proud of that fact. There are actually two facilities there, and side by side, they created more than 2,000 jobs in the first year. Madison County's flat land and proximity to interstates, airports, rail, and river travel made it an appealing location for the e-commerce giant. John Feldman is with Amazon. So as the tornado warnings uh, happened, uh, the take, take shelter happened, uh, both in the north side of the building and the south side of the building, uh, and everything we've, that we've seen, uh, it was all, all procedures followed correctly. Uh, the thing that I kind of want to emphasize is just the heroic nature of all 46 people that were in the building. I mean, they, they definitely saved lives. Uh, and uh, we're going to keep investing and we'll keep seeing, can we get better what we could have done differently? But uh, it was unbelievable, the amount of uh, heroic nature that happened that night. Take shelter location, there was a take shelter location in, in the north side of the building where the vast majority of the people were. Uh, it had plenty of capacity uh, for uh, the, in the evening of Friday night. Uh, it, is a, it is a smaller shift for us, uh, and so it, had, it was more than enough capacity. Uh, we're reviewing everything. All indication was there was a tremendous focus and effort on this, and that there were uh, there were uh, 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 megaphones, there were alerts that we were we were uh, corresponding with drivers that were coming back. 
there was a tremendous effort that happened that night uh, to keep everybody safe. Now, tornadoes in December are rare, but they do happen. Trent Ford is the state climatologist. There's not a tornado season in Illinois. And when we do get tornadoes in, the, in December, as well as, you know, January, February, November as well, they can actually be uh, disproportionately impactful as far as fatalities and injuries. Meanwhile, Governor Pritzker saying he wants to look at climate change and what impacts it has on building codes throughout the state. So it makes us wonder, I have to say, and I've spoken with the legislators that are here too, uh, about whether or not we need to um, change code based upon the climate change that we're seeing all around us. Uh, but, but suffice to say that that's something that we're deeply concerned about to make sure that code is where it ought to be. But former state rep Jeannie Ives thinks that's ridiculous. This is ridiculous. Not only is it irrelevant, it's not true. It's utterly not true. We always have tornadoes in December. It, it, that's a given fact. Um, we, we've actually seen a decrease in the severity of tornadoes um, since like the 1950s. And these people go to what they want to do because they have an agenda. And anything that can feed their agenda is what they will do. President Joe Biden ended up touring the storm damage, but not in Illinois, rather over in hard-hit Kentucky. The main thing I want to say is I'm amazed. I've been asking my FEMA folks and, and, and uh, my uh, Homeland Security, what, what is the most impressive thing you've seen? I meant in terms of, I started off thinking in damage. And they said, the way you all come together, the way people just come out of nowhere to help as a community. And uh, that's what we're supposed to be doing. That's uh, what that's America's supposed to be. There's no uh, red tornadoes or blue tornadoes. There's no red states or blue states when this stuff starts to happen. And uh, I think, uh, at least in my experience, uh, it either brings people together or really knocks them apart, moving you together here. It's, uh, but look, one thing I'll say, and I'll, but I want to hear from all of you, is that, um, and I know the governor and the former governor have been through this before, but uh, immediately after disaster is a time when people are really, really moving and trying to help each other and trying to get things done. But after... Uh, <clears throat> A month, after six weeks, after two months, people uh, can get themselves to the point where they get fairly depressed about what's going on, particularly our young kids, particularly people who've lost somebody. And so uh, I just want you to know the help that we're able to offer at the federal level is not just now. Uh, Chief, uh, you know, there's uh, other forms of being able to help the police department beyond FEMA, beyond the, uh, what we have now. Fire service, same way. Fire service, you know, there's that old expression, God made man, then he made a few firefighters. Um, but I really mean it. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, going to need help. And a lot of the business people are going to be wondering what's going on. But the interesting thing is, as you fly over here, as I've done in the past, I've not seen this tornado dam this much damage from a tornado. Um, you know, you think, but for the grace of God, why was I not 100 yards outside that line? Yes. Um, which makes it so different. So I think there's, anyway, I just, what I'm, I just want you to know, and I'm driving the governor crazy calling him all the time, <laughs> but um, there may be things available that would be helpful six weeks and six months from now 
that you're unaware of. And so we're, I've instructed my team to make all aware of everything that is available from a federal level. And some of it has to do outside of FEMA, outside of the uh, um, Homeland Security. This is the other program. The president went on to approve emergency declarations for Kentucky as well as Illinois and other states impacted. We turn to crime, particularly when it comes to Chicago and the increasing number of smash and grabs, retail theft on the rise. House Minority Leader Jim Durkin of Western Springs is introducing legislation targeting the organized theft rings behind these headline-grabbing crimes. Durkin wants Cook County State's Attorney Kim Fox to know that these thefts are organized and sophisticated. It's really significant that we have an elected state's attorney who doesn't follow the law, who doesn't believe that retail theft is a real crime. And I don't know what it's going to take for her to realize that because of her inaction on these crimes, it is part of what has created this environment, what has created a very sophisticated, organized group of criminals who are going about uh, rampaging through whether it's large retailers or smaller shops, taking away millions, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars in a very well-organized p- process. It's not just these guys are not selling these goods out of the back of their trunk or over at Maxwell Street. This is part of an online marketplace that is going into this effort. And she fails to recognize that this is a bigger issue than just a person who is stealing a candy bar from a, from a Walgreens. And my my intention, one, is to pass this bill, but to put her in, in a position to say whether or not she supports this or not. This is her responsibility uh, to take on this type of activity and not treat it as someone who is jaywalking. He says the way the cases would be treated is along the lines of the RICO laws. He joined John Howell last week on WLS. Well, I'll just say that I'm treating it the same way we treat conspiracies, the way we treat RICO cases. And they should be treated, these groups should be treated the same way that the U.S. attorneys have treated the Four Corner Hustlers, the Mafia, and, you know, some of these other mega games. But the way I have it worded is that uh, it's kind of like a conspiracy uh, definition. Works with one or more people to steal merchandise with the intent of selling or returning the merchandise for profit. Work with two or more people to receive, purchase, or possess merchandise they believe to be stolen. Act as an agent. This is important. As an agent of another individual or groups to steal merchandise from one or more merchants' premises as part of an organized plan to commit theft. This tracks what we see currently that we have, as I said earlier, on some of these mega gang trials that deal with drugs and also murder. But the fact is, this is an organized effort, and we have to treat them as the same way we treat these other group of vandals, not vandals, just just criminals of the worst nature. Durkin saying the governor and speaker are out of touch. They can't admit, neither the speaker nor Governor Pritzker, they cannot admit that they have completely dismantled public safety in Illinois based on what they did last January in lame duck session when they signed that horrible police reform bill. It is not just only cripple law enforcement and for them to be able to do their job, but also is a terrible disgrace to victims of crime. And if they acknowledge that this is a good plan and that we're going to have to be tougher on people, it goes against the business model or the model that they've created. Governor Pritzker said last week the Republicans that Jim Durkin just wants to lock people up. Sure, sure, I, I do want to lock people up. I want to lock up the right people, but people who are destroying our business community through this economic terrorism. But think about the what has happened to that employee, whether that shop is going to have to be shut down 
or the psychological impact of this upon that employee and also consumers. The effect of this is far greater than just the loss of the property. So the speaker and the the governor, they've created a consequence-free society in Illinois for criminals. I've seen it, and I've talked about this since they signed that bill into law, but this is a combination of a, uh, a demoralized law enforcement community and also laws that are not for the public and not for the victim, but are more about the so-called so data-driven approach towards uh, making Illinois a safer state. Yeah. Well, here's the data, Governor. It's the $2 million that was over the weekend at that mm-hmm. one store and the, every other yeah. day. That's either it's Oakbrook or Whitfield, you name it. Also happening last week, after years of discussion, the sale of the Thompson Center. Governor Pritzker making the announcement. For two decades, Illinois governors have known that the sale of the James R. Thompson Center was essential to achieving efficiency in our state government operations. Today, I am proud to announce that for the very first time, we're taking a massive step forward with a plan that will result in the sale of the Thompson Center and that will save taxpayers $800 million. After reviewing two final bids, our team has entered into exclusive negotiations with a team that offered the best vision for the building's future, preserves the transit hub, and yields tremendous cost savings on this property. On top of that, there's no better equipped, no one better equipped to honor the original design of this building through a modern lens. Mike Reschke, head of the Prime Group and the JRTC's holdings team, is well known for his commitment to the LaSalle Street Corridor and to maintaining the economic vitality in and around his projects. I came into office with a promise to manage state government resources more efficiently and to support local governments. By returning vital real estate in downtown Chicago to private ownership, tens of millions in revenue will be generated for Chicago public schools and for property taxpayers. As we move forward in this transaction, I want the people of Illinois to know that I have not forgotten the important role that Governor Jim Thompson played in our state's history. I've spoken directly with Governor Thompson's family And with their blessing, we will be looking to determine another opportunity to honor his tremendous legacy for this state. I want to be sure you all understand the magnitude of the savings that we will realize upon the sale of this building. So let's briefly talk numbers. The Prime Group will be purchasing the Thompson Center for $70 million up front. And just as importantly, this sale alleviates taxpayers of over half a billion dollars in necessary deferred maintenance costs on this building. On top of that, we're consolidating multiple leases in downtown Chicago and lowering operating costs, which together will save taxpayers an average of approximately $20 million a year for the next 30 years. We've also negotiated to have some of the state of Illinois offices move back into this building when it is completed. We'll own roughly a third of the renovated building, which more than pays for itself with savings on deferred maintenance. By maintaining hundreds of permanent jobs in the LaSalle Street corridor, state employees will be there to support 
the Loop's continued economic revitalization for years to come. The new majority owners intend to develop the rest of this space into a state-of-the-art mixed-use building, including executive offices, conferencing center and auditorium spaces, retail and hotel space. And as you will see in a few moments, the design is truly stunning. This sale uh, marks the advancement in the fiscal comeback of the state of Illinois. Fiscal success means finding efficiencies, whether it's in our real estate footprint or in our use of technology or in our healthcare cost savings. I'm proud that working with the General Assembly, we have virtually eliminated our multi-billion dollar backlog, passed three responsible balanced budgets, achieved credit rating upgrades for the first time in over two decades, paid down existing pre-existing debt, and consistently reduced the state's structural deficit. On top of that, we've made generational investments in airports and roads and broadband infrastructure and updated facilities at our state universities. Step by step, we're restoring fiscal responsibility and moving our state forward. This is a new era of responsible governance in Illinois, one that protects our taxpayers and fosters the jobs and opportunities that working families deserve. Future owner Mike Reschke says the building, even with its current problems, is important to him. I've lived and maintained my office here in downtown Chicago for the last four decades, and we've been a major investor, owner, developer of office, hotels, and the like uh, throughout downtown Chicago. Uh, so obviously when this opportunity came uh, um, before us, uh, we were a bit cynical because of the reputation the building had, but we took a very hard, conscientious look at the opportunity to make further investment in LaSalle Street uh, for the benefit of uh, local businesses, the city, and the state. The uh, RFP was issued about seven months ago, and the first thing we did was to do a, a, a really deep dive and analysis of what's the highest and best use uh, for this asset. There's a lot of talk over the years about actually demolishing the building, which would be a travesty, absolute travesty. Um, and and we, we, we took it upon ourselves to evaluate because of our experience in developing and owning assets here downtown to look at all the different uses, keeping it as an office building, converting it to apartments, converting it to or part of it to a hotel, the retail center, and ex potentially expanding the retail space and the like. And after a pretty deep analysis, we concluded that office was still the highest and best use. So we took a, a look at the problems that have plagued this building since 1985 when it opened. And those problems we found were very manageable. And actually the problems with the building really become the opportunities to make this building iconic and special and return it uh, uh, to the city inventory as a Class A uh, asset. Um, the problems start with the curtain wall. Uh, as you can see sitting in this room, the curtain wall has a limited amount of vision glass. If you look at the typical wall, less than one-third of the exterior wall, even though this is a glass building, uh, the, the, it has limited amount of vision glass. And what does that do? It takes what was supposed to be the transparency of government, and it closes people in who work 
in, in, in the building and, and doesn't allow natural light to come in. Uh, so we're going to change, we're going to totally reskin the building with a new curtain wall that'll feature floor to ceiling vision glass to let natural light in. It'll also be energy efficient. Uh, thermal pane, the current window wall is, is an obsolete single pane system. So, so the new curtain wall will also reduce heat gain and sun glare, which are the two primary uh, problems with the building today. It's been a nightmare to control the temperature in the building. Constantly requires air conditioning. If you look at the historical electrical usage on this building, it's consistent all 12 months of the year because even in the wintertime, the heat gain from the sun is so strong that the air conditioning needs to run in the middle of January. A new curtain wall will fix that problem and will reduce energy costs by over 50%. The other problem with the, the building is the atrium. The open atrium is the strength of the building and will be the feature of the building going forward. But the open atrium has created a lot of problems in the past. One is noise. Uh, people cannot have a quiet enjoyment of their office floors above because the noise just reverberates through the atrium. Second is odors. Third is security. And finally, fourth is acoustics. The atrium could be a beautiful place for social events and, 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 and activities, uh, but the acoustical control is horrible, but that can be fixed. What we intend to do is to clad the atrium with a brand new glass curtain wall, uh, separating the office space from the atrium to eliminate the noise issues, the security problems, and any problems with odors and, and, and the like. Um, the atrium is unique. It's, a, it's the only 17-story uh, atrium that I know of, uh, for that matter, on an office building, any office building in the United States. And that atrium will become the monumental entrance to the future office building. And, and it will be unlike any other entrance in the city and, for that matter, in, in the country. The Thompson Center opened in 1985 and encompasses nearly 1.2 million square feet of enclosed area. Up next, the Reporter Roundtable. This is Connected to Chicago on WLS. This is Connected to Chicago. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. And it's time for the Reporter Roundtable, and we welcome Lynn Sweet, Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief for the Chicago Sun-Times, Greg Hines of Crane Chicago Business, Heather Sharon of WTTW Chicago Tonight, and Ray Long of the Chicago Tribune. Well, guys, there's talk out there that Aurora Mayor Richard Irvin may be jumping into the race for governor um, on the Republican side of things. He's well-liked out in Aurora. Um, I think the bigger story maybe here is that he would maybe get the backing of billionaire Ken Griffin, and we know it's going to take a lot of money to run against Governor Pritzker. So, Lynn, what do you think? Uh, I don't think the field is formed. I don't think Griffin would just underwrite totally somebody with so, uh, so untested right now. Uh, his name recognition outside even of the Republican Party, which is all that it's not even clear that he's known within the Republican Party strong enough to uh, prevail in a primary. And when you remember, Ken Griffin wants to beat J.B. Pritzker. Uh, 
he has to assess first if who he picks can win a Republican primary. And if there are some Democratic uh, strains in his background, that will make it difficult. Well, you know, I would just like to say also that he has an interesting background. I mean, he, he's been to uh, uh, Middle East for various uh, military operations. He's uh, African-American. He's got a law degree. And he uh, may have more of a pro-choice tilt. We're still trying to determine exactly what his um, uh, ideology is. But um we're still at the point now where we find this guy to be kind of curious. If you want to take uh, out some of the uh, natural um, constituency of Democrats, uh, he may fit a profile here that could draw some votes. Uh, so w- the key here is to is to beat Pritzker, obviously, and uh, he's going to be uh, raring to go and already has things lined up and is chugging away so uh whoever they pick they have to have somebody that is is gonna be able to bring together some kind of inviting profile that can draw votes away from governor pritzkin yeah nick i think that uh that ray and lynn are both right there's a lot of smoke here uh, uh but it hasn't yet uh we, we haven't seen the fire yet um uh, it does appear, indeed, that the Mayor Urban, uh, who had was originally a couple of weeks ago, said he wasn't interested, is, is now interested, uh, and potentially uh, Ken Griffin is interested in him, too. But I'm told, I think reliably, that uh, that Griffin has made no formal commitment. And at the same time, there's some other names uh, that are emerging and re-emerging uh, who might get in the fray. One of them is Todd Ricketts, the co-owner of the Cubs, the uh, outgoing head of the Republican the finance chair of the Republican National Committee. Uh, uh, there's, uh, his, his spokesman during the week uh, refused to rule out a race, just saying that uh, he has no current plans, which uh, is a pretty good loophole. There's also talk about Richard Porter, the Republican National Committeeman from Chicago, who uh, I'm told decided to take a look at it after Congressman Rodney Davis dropped out. And uh, although uh, Ken Griffin would be the big pony financially here. Uh, Mr. Griffin, I think, has let it be known that he expects other Republican businessmen uh, to, to pony up to the bar, come up to the bar and put down our wallets and write some checks, too. Uh, so how this all is going to turn out is not quite clear yet. Um, it's going to have to happen. Uh, it'll probably happen right after the holidays, but it'll have to happen pretty soon thereafter because petitions start to be passed in, in, in January. Uh, but uh, at this point, I don't think we know for sure what the cast of characters is. I want to underscore very much what uh, Greg said and keeping and how open the field is. If you have uh, Richard Porter is also and Todd Ricketts, the plus here is that there are also known quantities to former President Trump. It would it's unknown whether or not Trump would want to intervene in the primary in order to whatever. Uh, you know, so so you you have I cannot emphasize how hard it will be to win a Republican primary if somebody is deemed not a Trump Republican. Can a downstater win? Because, you know, we've got Darren Bailey, who has come out and announced uh, Stephanie Trussell as his running mate. Uh Darren, I think, uh, was a Trump supporter. (laughs) Stephanie has kind of come out in the past and was against Trump. Um, 
I guess, A, can a downstater win? And B, what's Darren Bailey's angle by picking Stephanie Trussell? Well, I think, sure, sure a downstater can, can win. Uh, the question is, it's got, is not so much where the person comes from. It's, it's, it's where they are culturally and politically. <clears throat> um, uh, the balance of, uh, even though the Republican Party in this state, like it has nationally, has moved to the right in recent years and is, is, uh, is certainly has a fascination with uh, former President Trump, um, uh, the, the balance of power in the party in this state traditionally has been in, in, the, in the suburbs, uh, which have flipped Democratic, but uh, could be perhaps moved back depending on the right candidate. Um, uh, so, I don't, uh, so, you know, Mr. Bailey... On the hand, kind of acts like a downstater culturally. Uh, there's a stridency and intensity to uh, to some of his things. I don't think plays well in the suburbs, which is why I think what Lynn and everybody else just talked about is now starting to come about. Some other candidates are kicking tires and and saying that, well, gee, uh, this field hasn't hasn't moved numbers. Maybe there's room for somebody else. So the other thing to you know always factor in here is that it only takes a plurality to win the nomination. So the more people that are in the race increases the likelihood that a downstater like Darren Bailey could win because he he is the Trumpiest of them all so far. Uh, and unless the untested running mate makes some mistake, he has a consolidated base. And if you're looking at five, six, seven people who might get in, you could get the nomination with 30% or less. So that's the number to keep your eye on. Yeah, a perfect example to underscore Lynn's point there is uh, when Bill Brady won um, a few years back for the Republican nomination. He won only by like 130-some-odd votes, um, and he uh, beat out a field that included some strong candidates uh, from the Chicago suburbs and DuPage County, including Kirk Dillard, who came in just second, and um, one of the reasons uh, the votes were so uh, broken up were there were several people from the suburbs, and they split the votes, and Brady had a strong downstate turnout, and he was able to pull it off. If they get into that kind of situation again, then a downstate candidate could, could come together here. Now, the interesting thing is that there are other downstate candidates already in the field, so they could also break apart. But uh, it will it will come down to uh, a harder right candidate, such as Bill Brady, if they get a bunch of of, uh, of different uh, folks coming in with different ideologies on things like taxes and abortion and other hot-button topics that will come up uh, big in in the minds of Republican primary voters. One other thought here, gang, before we move on. Um, uh, the, 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 the bottom line here is to come up with a candidate who can beat Governor Pritzker, who's a Democrat and who has a, a, a huge wallet of his own that he's not at all shy about about spending. Um, if I were the Pritzker strategist, I'd, I'd be kind of smiling at how this has all played out this week, uh, because because uh, uh, the the implication here, the, it's easy to sell this as well. Ken Griffin wants a lap poodle who's, uh, who's going to run for governor. <laughs> you don't think the Pritzker people can have fun with that? Uh, and if the opponent uh, is is somebody who's uh, who's uh, uh, I love Trump. Uh, kind of person, way to the political right, that doesn't play in the state very well either. Uh, so 
you know, having a candidate and having a candidate with money is always better than having nobody or having no money. But uh, the Republicans should have worked all this out months ago. One uh, one other thing about Ken Griffin, he has multiple plays for his option. If let's say he doesn't really like anyone in the field, uh, he may not bankroll anyone and just save his money for the general, and he could form an independent expenditure and just bankroll millions of dollars of negative ads uh, focusing on Governor Pritzker. And who's to say, I don't, just by the few smoke signals that Griffin has put up, it doesn't mean to me that he would directly underwrite a campaign because of the reasons you all just said. Whoever is a whole, you don't want to, it becomes an a Ken Griffin uh, cutout. It, it, it really is Ken running under the guise of someone else. So he could just, if it's if, if no one is really that great, to save his money to keep hitting at Pritzker. That isn't a bad strategy either. Then he doesn't have to listen to anybody. I mean, that independent expenditure idea is just uh, go on the attack, like Lynn said, yeah. and you don't have to consult. In fact, you're not supposed to consult with the candidates. So let it fly and, and see where it, the chips fall. Right, and that probably that probably would happen anyway. He has enough money to uh, donate heavily to the party, which has its own fundraising issues to the, to the party and to a third party expenditure. So, or maybe even two third party expenditures. It always helps to have an outside group do the real heavy negative stuff, letting the candidate, at least in theory, stay above the fray. And while we're talking about governor. It's interesting to note why there are multiple people and names we have interested in being governor. So far, no name has surfaced to run against Senator Tammy Duckworth. Interesting, don't you think? Yeah, very interesting. Um, uh, I mean, that's the game in American politics right now, uh, beyond the presidency. And you, you're right, there is absolutely nobody. I thought it was a little, a little speculation now that uh, Ricketts, if he's really interested, might uh, be talked into running for, for senator again, rather than governor. But uh, uh, that to put together an FEC race and raise the money uh, that's needed at this point is very, very difficult. Before we jump into a House race, I just want to let our listeners know a reason it's the state races are free will be free from uh, contribution limits, and because of uh, once one wealthy person puts in money, it, it, it changes the game. In a federal race, though, you can only raise money from individuals in a limited amount and packs in a limited amount, so you cannot have the situation that we're talking about in a governor race where one person could put an overwhelming amount of money in a contest. Uh, Congresswoman Mary Miller down in the 15th, uh, not backing down when it comes to defending President Trump. Uh, That may not help her in seeking a second term as redistricting has left her uh, in a district with three representatives. Uh, What do we think is going to happen there in the 15th, Lynn? Well, the uh, the new 15th, because we we have a a remap going on. I just want to set it up. Uh, there are two Republican districts downstate and three incumbents, so this was never going to be pretty. Uh, all my reporting uh, and the signals I have show she's going to run against Rodney Davis and not Michael Boss. Uh, the Boss and Davis, uh, conservatives, Trump backers, but have long track records. Uh, they have seniority in committees. 
battle-tested, especially Rodney Davis. What's interesting about Mary Miller is she is the she is comes from and then allied with the Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, faction within the Republican Party. So you even have Trumpists in one place. But then when you go to Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's just controversial, provocative, outlandish, I believe her in conspiracy theories, uh, Mary Miller has thrown in with that most extreme faction of the Republican Party. So it would be interesting to see how that could translate in a race so into Greene is that her campaign senior advisor is the man who was the campaign manager for Marjorie Taylor Greene's successful 2020 race. Okay, Lynn, we're going to let you go. Thanks for hopping on with us. Okay, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye. I want to get Heather in here. Heather, the mayor is battling fast food businesses, sugary drinks. This at a time when carjackings are on the rise, smash and grabs. We see all this crime running rampant. What is she thinking? Well, this is a really interesting story, and it's more complicated than it appears. Uh, Governor Pritzker just this week signed into a, signed into law a bill that essentially does what the mayor proposed doing on Wednesday. And it is not clear to me whether the mayor was completely unaware of this or, or how this happened, but she introduced it at Wednesday's city council meeting, which means that the first opportunity the city council would have to vote on it would be in January after the first of the new year. And she really spoke um, at some length about the need to fight childhood obesity and protect children and help parents make good decisions for their children. But the fact of the matter is, is that this state law, which requires restaurants when they sell a kid's meal to make the default option for the drink something low calorie and low sugar like milk or water rather than pop, um, is already in place. And um, it's just not clear to me how this came about and why the mayor made such a point of introducing this measure, um, which would not really have any impact um, in Chicago because it's already the law. So it's a puzzler. Heather, do you think that uh, that she's trying to change the subject? Clearly, the news cycle in terms of the crime stuff is, uh, has been just absolutely vicious to this merit. It doesn't – I mean, there's stories uh, every day now about uh, carjacking here, murder there, uh, child killed uh, in this neighborhood or that. Um, is she trying to change the subject? Always a possibility, but um, and there's a reason I'm a journalist and not a uh, political consultant, but I don't understand why making this point would serve her because there was an article in the Tribune pointing this out. Uh, Rich Miller over at Capital Facts has been sort of focused on this as well. Um, I don't know how this helps her change the subject, especially after the um, text messages between the, the mayor and the governor um, forced out of City Hall by the Chicago Tribune showed an exchange between the governor and the mayor with the mayor saying that she was going to threatened to impose a mask mandate, and then the governor, 20 minutes later, very politely reminding the mayor that a mask mandate was already in place. Um, it, it shows, I think, at a minimum, a real disconnect between the governor and the mayor, who are, of course, supposed to be two Democrats singing from the same party hymnal. Uh, of course, Governor Pritzker is up for re-election in 2022, whereas if the mayor runs for re-election, as everybody expects, um, she's not up until 2023. It also makes you wonder just how connected she is. I mean, there's been a, a bit of a disconnect in Springfield with 
with her. And so uh, is she paying attention to the full scope or is she so focused on Chicago that she's tuning in, uh, tuning out rather the rest of the state as a guy who just went to Dunkin' Donuts uh, before the show here, I guess uh, she may have a point where she wants to try to change attitudes, though, about uh, obesity. Yeah, but you had coffee with that Dunkin' Donuts. Well, actually, it was that... a strawberry milk. I intended chocolate, but actually, I picked it up strawberry. Well, it just makes me wonder, though, guys, I mean, is she that out of touch? Because it doesn't seem like Pritzker and her really get along. I mean, it's like an outside observer here. And it makes me wonder these rumors that, you know, was it the New York Times digging up something saying, oh, Pritzker could run for for president. That gets him out of the way. I, I mean, I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. You know, I, I'm going to draw an analogy here between uh, between uh, what's happening. We just talked about in the governor's race and what's happening in the mayor's race. Um, as, is, as has been the uh, up to now in the governor's race, there's been nobody move the needle, who's declared? Nobody who looks like they could really get Pritzker run for his money. Well, the same is true with Lightfoot. Uh, even though she would seem to be vulnerable in any number of ways, uh, no one of consequence has really started to uh, to emerge it as a potential candidate against her. And uh, and yes, there is still a, there's probably still a few months for somebody to make a move, but it's also getting late. You know, what I keep wondering is, and, and the normal role of a politics when a politician stumbles and they have problems, how many times somebody else comes up to to, to fill the vacuum? I've yet to see that happen in the mayor's race. Yeah, you got it goes back to the old saying: you got to have somebody to to beat somebody. You can't just uh, expect them to collapse on their own. So. Um, until somebody who looks like a real candidate, sounds like a real candidate, and has some power and money behind them comes out in either of these cases, the mayor's race or the governor's race, we're, we're still looking at uh, a pretty good incumbent protection plan. Yeah, I mean, one of the guys who was on my list as a potential candidate, uh, Alderman Gil Villegas, uh from the northwest side, the uh, chairman of the uh, Latino Caucus and City Council, uh, had made some interesting points. Uh, used to be Lightfoot's light uh, floor leader, uh, but he's now made it clear he's going to run for Congress. Uh, that takes him out of the mayoral pool. Uh, I mean, Heather, have you seen any signs of anybody positioning themselves at all? No. Um, and I think there was a lot of chatter about Arnie Duncan a few months ago um, because of the problems that Chicago is having with crime. He's been very active since leaving former President Barack Obama's cabinet um, in violence prevention programs. And I think he um, is seen as somebody who has a compelling story to tell about how to approach crime in a different way. Um, but he has receded somewhat from the spotlight. Um, but, you know, it, it's a long time away. And I, I, I do still have the sense that a lot of jockeying for 2023 at the city politics level is a little bit in limbo because we don't have ward maps yet. Uh, I'm sorry I interrupted, but where was Lori Lightfoot two years before the last mayoral right. race, too? Everybody was looking at Rom. Everybody was looking at Rom and saying, "Where was she?" Twelve weeks before the the vote. Yeah, absolutely. You know, agreed. But uh, but uh, at this point, we're uh, what uh, fourteen months away from the first round. Um, it, it takes 
time and effort and money to put something together. Yeah, we have some time, but uh, but uh, if by light spring we're not seeing anybody make a move, I'm beginning to wonder if somebody will. All right, folks, we're going to leave it there. My thanks to Lynn Sweet, Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief over at the Sun-Times, Greg Hines at Crane Chicago right. Business, Heather Sharona, WTTW Chicago Tonight, and Ray Long of your Chicago Tribune. Up next, Lauren Cohn. You're listening to Connected to Chicago on WLS. This is Connected to Chicago, a look at the top stories of the week with the people making, covering, and talking about the news of the day. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. I'm Lauren Cohn for Connected to Chicago. Smash and grab robberies continue to plague Chicago and the suburbs. Retail store owners are faced with having to protect their workers and customers in this growing violence problem. Rob Carr is the president and CEO of the Illinois Retail Merchants Association. He joins me now. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Lauren. Good to be with you. What is your reaction to this problem that just won't go away? Well, clearly, uh, there's an extraordinary amount of concern and angst over the problem. I mean, retailers spend tens of millions of dollars in Illinois every year, probably hundreds of millions, uh, and let alone nationally, uh, to try to protect themselves, their customers, and their merchandise. Uh, But clearly, uh, you know, this problem continues to grow. It's grown 60% in the last five years. And so this is something that's going to require the cooperation of everyone to, uh, to get on top of. Well, when you talk about cooperation, there's a lot of finger pointing, like Mayor Lightfoot recently came out saying she was blaming retail stores for not doing enough uh, for their own security. Is that really fair? No, it's not. And it shows a level of uh, lack of information, I think, uh, a lack of awareness of what is really going on with investments retailers make. And, you know, criminals go after soft targets. And what they see in Chicago right now is a soft target because the leaders who need to be sitting down with the retail community to address this are pointing fingers at each other instead. I mean, when we had the protest last summer and there was lots of looting, the mayor told the stores to make sure they had good insurance, not sending the best message to, you know, the criminals that you won't be punished. And uh, we just had another smash and grab over the weekend at Gold Coast Exotic Motor Dealership in the middle of the day in Rush Street. And, you know, I don't I don't blame people who work in these stores who don't want to go anywhere near it. They don't want to get shot. They're afraid for their families. Even Joe Perillo was speaking out, and I feel like I hear more and more of the business community saying something, but there's no change. As Joe noted, and he's not the only one, there were even armed guards present there, and there were armed guards present in other situations as well. Clearly, the criminals, at least in the city of Chicago, don't feel any significant deterrent, and I think that's something that, again, the leaders need to quit pointing each other, get on the same page, and coordinate so that the criminals understand there are consequences and severe consequences for their actions. I think there's also a lack of awareness that this is an organized problem, and it funds a great deal of illicit activity, including guns, uh, on our streets, human trafficking, drug peddling, um, other uh, illicit activity, and it's eroding our sales tax base. So there's a real vested interest for them to get on the same page, cooperate with our retail community, and address this problem. I saw that city council just voted to increase taxes along the mag mile to help pay for security. What is your reaction to that? Because you just seems like the stores keep getting not just targeted by criminals, but targeted financially. And that's just an incentive for more people to leave. Businesses in that corridor agreed to that. And I think it's unfortunate, however, that they had to agree to that to get something more done. Uh, they're already paying significant taxes in Cook County. They're getting additional uh, significant shares of the property tax shifted on to them. You'll recall that commercial and industrial property already carries far more than their fair share of the property tax burden in Cook County. Um, so you're right, it is, it is a significant additional burden that they shouldn't have to carry. 
but they clearly felt the need, at least in that commercial strip, to do it. But it's more than the mag mile we're talking about. I mean, this is happening in Little Village. Uh, it's happening in Englewood. It's happening all over uh, the city of Chicago and Cook County. Rob, what more can be done? I mean, I know it's about the, our city leaders, but it seems that the mayor points the finger at the prosecutor, the DA's office. They look at, you know, criminals being let out. Then you talk about the judges. Then it goes to the superintendent who says he's got everything in his toolbox. They move police officers from one section of the city to another section without adding more to the street. There's, you know, a lot of non-support for our police officers. I, I don't know what more can be done. Thoughts on your end? Well, we're going to come out in the very near future with our own uh, comprehensive approach to this uh, that will require some action by everyone, um, and, and we'll see what their reactions are. We'll continue our conversations, and but I think, as I've said many times before, the minimum threshold is our elected leaders need to take the responsibility to ensure public safety, which is a minimum threshold requirement of their job. Rob Carr, President and CEO of the Illinois Retail Merchants Association. Thank you so much. And I'm Lauren Cohn for Connected to Chicago. Connected to Chicago, a production of WLS News. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. 